Church, Charlotte. Well, what a blessing it is to have you all on here already. Praise God. Thank you so much for joining. We're going to pray here in a minute. And I have a little study for you that I found. Oh, man. I, I mean almost brought to tears in, in doing the studying for it. So I can't wait to share it with you guys. Praise God. Amen. Uh, Father, I thank you tonight for your people who are here before us. I pray that you will speak through me to them so that they will not hear me, they will hear you. I pray, God, that you'll grant unto us an understanding heart that we will be good receptacles for your word and that it'll find good ground and it will grow and expand in our hearts and minds. I pray for everyone on this call, particularly those who are not feeling well, those who are struggling with difficulties of every kind, those who are sick, those who are diseased. I pray that you will touch them and heal them. Show yourself mighty and powerful in our lives so that we will be able to testify and say in that day that God is our help. We give you thanks, dear Jesus, and we thank you once again for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Everybody say amen. Everybody say amen. Come on now. Say amen. Amen. The lady that got baptized on Sunday was 85 years old. Okay, you saw me taking my time. Wow. Her down into the pool. She was 85. She called up on the church phone and she said, I want to be baptized in Jesus' name. Wow. And that's what she said. She said, Y'all sure? Y'all sure you're baptized in Jesus' name? I said, Yes. She said, well, I want to be baptized in Jesus' name. And wow. I'm coming to church. And she sure did come. She was early too. And I said, Well, we 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 like to baptize in the eleven o'clock service. And she said, I'll wait. I'm not going anywhere. So mm. So she had made up her mind. What a blessing it was to, to baptize. Wonderful, her. wonderful. Man, and talk to her about the things of God. What a blessing it was. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. All right. um, so I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles, turn your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter number one. First Peter, chapter number one. Hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, you can go to your app on your phone. James, first and second Peter, First Peter, chapter number one, and we're reading verses eighteen. 19, 20, and 21. 1 Peter chapter number 1, verses 18 through 21. Reading through the ESV version. Here begins the reading of God's word. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter writes, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by the traditions that you received from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Watch that. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest Right now, he was manifest in these last times for you 
he was manifested for us. He was manifested for me. Verse 21, who through him believed in God was raised, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He did it so that our faith would be in God. And my subject tonight is redeemed by blood. Redeemed by blood, not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. The dictionary defines redemption as the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or for the clearing of a debt. I'll read that definition again. Number one, the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. The second definition of the word redemption is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for the payment of a debt. So there we have the definition of, re of redemption. I'll take you also to Romans 5, verse 8 through 11. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, not corruptible things, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Verse 10, for if we were, when we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more? Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more? Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Amen. First, let me say that we, as children of God, all belong to a redeemed race. We have been redeemed. We used to sing a song when, when I was going to church in New York. We haven't sung, sung it down here. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you know it. Redeemed when my burden of sin was high. Redeemed. I wish I could sing. When my soul was condemned to die. Redeemed. For Christ I could not pay. Redeemed. Hallelujah. Redeemed. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't know the real songs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> where people were glad when they thought about what Christ did for us. We have been redeemed, y'all. So we are a redeemed people. First Timothy 2 and 5 says, For there is one God between one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. That's, that's that redemption. He gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. This simply means that Jesus Christ paid the debt and ransom that we owed. 
Therefore, according to the scripture, we belong to him. The majority of people in our world do not know this or acknowledge this truth. We belong to Jesus. I, I wish you could say that to yourself. I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. I belong to him. Now, there are others, although they know it, they do not allow that knowledge to influence their lives or their behavior or their conduct. But they would still trade their birthright for a bowl of stew like Esau did with his brother in Genesis 25. Happy are you, though, if you do not only hold the fact of your redemption as, as just an intellectual exercise or an intellectual ascension, but you permit that redemption to become the molding principle of your entire life. If this is you, the words of the Apostle Peter come with a marvelous directness and force, acknowledging that fact that you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price, and therefore you know you have been redeemed. And, and you should behave that way. I, I don't think we often behave like we've been redeemed. I, I think we behave sometimes like that maybe God did us a favor, or we're doing him a favor. It shouldn't be that casual. It should be much more serious than that. In fact, probably, probably the most amazing thing about us is that we've been redeemed. It's quite a lot to have been created in the first place or, or, or called into being by the will of the creator. It's quite a lot to be endowed with life in a world so full of marvelous possibilities as ours. And it's quite a lot to have a soul. Which, which our souls could call up a memory from years ago or interrogate what's happening to us in the present or maybe anticipate or prepare for the future. But it is so much more to have been redeemed. I want you to see the comparisons that I'm making. It is so much more that we have been redeemed. Redeemed as was ancient Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, right? Or like Ruth, uh, a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, redeeming her from a place of depravity or from captivity, some rich creditor. Or, or to be in bondage to some hideous vice like drugs or something like that. The word redeemed there connotes being rescued, being ransomed, being delivered, being bought. I mean, maybe you've never been in debt, like up to your eyeballs, as we sometimes say. And then have it being erased just like that. And feeling that weight coming off of your shoulders. Uh, how many of y'all ever paid for a car and wrote that last car payment check? Ha, hallelujah. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> I see you, Vicky. <laughs> that last check, writing it in and sending it in and feeling that relief, that relief of being debt-free. Or, or maybe it's your home. 
and you wrote that check and sent in that last payment. You know how 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 you do you you burn you burn the deed. Some people do anyway. I don't. Some people burn the deeds as a celebration after they've paid off their their house. But I believe we need to think that way. That that heaven uh, wasn't bought for us. We were bought for heaven. Come on, somebody. This bears repeating. Heaven was not bought for us. Jesus didn't die uh, to, to pay for us to go to heaven. It was a different kind of transaction. It was a love transaction. He, 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 he bought us for heaven. And that distinguishes us from among all other created beings. Now, the cost of our redemption was immense, right? I think, I think we can all agree if we have any sense of, even if you saw the movie uh, uh, that what Jim Caviezel did about the, the 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 resurrection of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ. Even if you just saw that movie and saw the price that he paid, it could give you some sense, not all of it, some sense of the price that was paid. I want to give you some sense of that in this lesson. The Bible says it was not purchased with corruptible things like silver or gold. I mean, a man with money, right? A man with money who has been accustomed to looking at his wealth as the key to solving all of his problems, when he, when he discovers how little his wealth can actually do in God's economy, it, it, touches, it touches only the circumference of his life. But it falls, it fails utterly in the question that affects the condition of the human heart the human existence. Money money cannot compensate for those things. M money can't compensate for broken vows. Come on, somebody. Money cannot compensate for cruel words uttered in the heat of an argument, which, which eats at the soul like acid. Money can't bring back the color to the pale cheeks of your spouse who you scolded Money cannot atone for the lack of love. Money can purchase only the things which are as corruptible as itself. But when it enters or seeks to enter the arena of souls, the, the eternal and or incorruptible things, money is useless. Its way is blocked. Its currency will not be accepted. Its claims cannot be heard. You cannot dissect an argument with a knife or measure love by the yard or weigh souls by the pound. And it's equally impossible to ransom even one soul from sin with money. There is nothing in common between gold and silver which can only endure for however long it lasts, uh, which will ultimately perish in the end, the Bible tells us. But the soul is made of eternal stuff. It comes from God. The Bible says, and God <sighs> and breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. 
So that is that is made of, you know, I was reading uh, about the creation the other day and the Bible says that the things that were created were not created of things that were made, that were already made. In other words, God created the universe out of things that we don't know anything about. We don't know anything about it. And that's the reason why scientists today are looking into the things of the, 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 the heavens and can't understand them because they're not made of things down here. There is nothing in common between what God has created and what we have. The soul is made of eternal stuff. It is impervious to decay or destruction. It is destined to survive the crash of life and the destruction of worlds. I mean, God could have given us a sun of gold, right? Stars that are made of silver and constellations glowing with, with precious metals, rubies. But none of these would have been sufficient to free just one soul from the curse or penalty of sin or to change it to a loyal, loving subject of, of the Lord. Think of it as on the scales of the universe where, where one, one side is weighed down on one side with the treasures of heaven, the jewels of its walls, the gold of its pavement. Yet, yet, just one soul placed on the other side of the scale would outweigh them all. In other words, earthly things account for nothing against the weighing scales of eternity. eternity. And therefore, the creator, even God himself, watch this, must not give things, but life itself that is made out of eternal things. Not his gifts, but himself. We're talking about redemption. So he could redeem all of mankind. And so the cost of redemption has been made even more immense when we think about it. Peter writes in chapter 17 and verse 11, we read in Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I give to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's what Moses wrote. But Peter writes, but it, with, it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the blood of Jesus Christ was, let's call it uber precious, right? It was super precious that it could balance the scale and pay for all the sins of mankind. All the sins of mankind. Now let's look at it this way. Life is your most precious and supreme possession. It is also God's most precious gift to you. To give up anything less uh, than an innocent life to redeem all of mankind's past, present, and future is to fall way short of the complete test of sacrifice. But when a man has given that, or a woman, they have given absolutely all they can. Your life is everything. Uh, Paul writes that where there is life, there is hope. We can get into a debate about the death penalty and all of that at this point, but I'd rather not. Uh, 
uh, and when we even talk about the death penalty, when 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 blood is mentioned with the laying down of one's life, there is a further thought of suffering, intense suffering, even. And that's why they did away with the, the 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 firing squad. I hear that there's some state in the union that's trying to bring that back because they can't source the chemicals for lethal injection anymore or something like that. But no one familiar with the rites and rituals that were displayed in the book of Leviticus and with that whole system in which the apostle Peter was educated from birth could ever encounter without instantly being reminded of the sacrificial system in which lamb after lamb, day after day, week after week, year after year were sacrificed for the sins of the people. When the apostle Peter speaks of being redeemed by the blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or without spot, he, he, he not only refers to the agony and violence of the circumstances of the death of Jesus, but it gives renewed meaning to the first idea about the Lord, which had fallen upon the ears from the lips of John, the forerunner. How many did you know that, that Peter was one of John's disciples before he became one of Jesus's disciples? Peter was hanging out with John, the forerunner. Read John 1, verses 35 through 42. There could be no doubt that he desires clearly to connect the sufferer, Jesus, at Calvary with the lambs daily offered in the morning and evening temple worship that he was so familiar with. I want to read John 1 now. Now that I've mentioned it, John 1, 35, John 1, 35, because it gives context to the relationship between Peter and John and Peter and Jesus. But in, in the context of this Bible study, it, it, it shows us something that might not have been known. So John 1, I'm reading from the ESV version, John 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, John saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37, these two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him on that day for it was the 10th hour, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So, so, so you could see from the very beginning, Peter was all wrapped up in that, that whole initial discovering of Jesus Christ. So when he writes this text as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he knew from whence Jesus came, innocent. Pure. 
but he's referring to the agony and violence and the circumstances of Jesus's death. And when you compare the two, it's as though his, his epistle here is accounting the morning. And he said there could be no doubt that he's trying to connect Jesus, the suffering of Calvary, with all the Old Testament sacrifices of the lambs that were slaughtered in worship services, the morning and evening sacrifices, uh, the Passover services that they that they slaughtered lambs for, and, and with others whose blood uh, we know is constantly flowing to make an atonement for the many, many sins of the people of Israel. Let me give you some data. Just in case you were wondering how many animals were sacrificed. For example, at the dedication of King Solomon's temple, which occurred uh, about 960 BC, the celebrants sacrificed 22,000 cattle, cows and bulls. But they also sacrificed 120,000 sheep in a two week time frame. There were so many offerings that Solomon had to set up additional altars in the temple courtyard. Read, read 1 Kings 8, verse 63 to 65. As large as those numbers seem, it's not inconceivable. Because according to David, he had put the number when he when he when he when he did a census of the people of Israel, he had put the number of able-bodied fighting men over the age of 20 to 1.3 million. And we find this in 2 Samuel 24, verse 9. So it would be reasonable to assume a national population in Israel at the time of Solomon of around 4 million. Well, 4 million people, more people, more animals, more animals, more sacrifice. And considering the number of lambs sacrificed in the Jewish temple, we must always remember that a large portion of this meat didn't go to waste. It was eaten either by the priests or those offering it. And, and, and by the way, every method was adopted to keep that sacred sacrifice pure and sweet and clean. And when we admit that this would fall to the office of the lower orders of creation, mankind, to serve the necessary interests of man, uh, animals being sacrificed for sin. There is not much difference between their dying to set forth in type and shadows, that great spiritual truth which, 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 which we know to be the importance of the shedding of blood. Because we know that the blood is the life of the soul. And blood provides nutrients for the sustenance of the body. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission of sins. So it is most important to give due weight to the suggestion of this passage which is corroborated by many similar ones throughout the Bible, that the death of Christ was no afterthought or was a consequence of man's fall, which was determined, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. The psalmist says, before the mountains were brought forth. Even the stars were given direction on their wondrous paths. 
or the first ray of light shot through the skies in the thought and purpose of God, our Lord was already slain. That's what it means by slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, before any of this, it was in the plan of God that that payment for sin would be made. So he was indeed foreordained, destined from before the foundation of the world for this very purpose, verse 20. And so the sacrifices of the Jewish ritual were in fact of a foreshadowing, a copies, if you will, of things in heaven. And when Moses went up into the mountain, it is probable that God gave him a vision and permitted him to see the divine purpose and plan of man's redemption, which as it passed before his mind took shape in, in that symbolism of the priest slaying the animal, that sacrifice and rite and ritual, which was God's method of teaching his people, the chosen people. And this afforded a rudimentary outline of the realities to come. And so when Moses and his scribes sat down to write the book of Leviticus, right? The first five books of the Bible, uh, Leviticus is one of them. When those rituals were being written down, one can imagine Moses dictating this to the scribes. So I don't want you to think of Calvary as being molded from the rituals in, in Leviticus but rather that it was the other way around. Because remember, Calvary was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. So Leviticus actually molded, I'm sorry, Calvary actually molded Leviticus as opposed to the other way around. Because it was in the mind of God from eternity. It is unmistakable that Leviticus furnishes the, the turnkey to understand the death of, on the cross of Jesus. And in those earlier books, the Holy Spirit supplies us with the, the nomenclature and the terms which he had already decided that he was going to employ. And just as it would be absurd to try to understand any difficult material, whether it's the origins of Euclid's um, geometry or anything else, without first studying its definitions, it is in vain to attempt to understand the marvels of Calvary without entering into the force and meaning of its rites and rituals of the ancient Hebrew sacrifice system. All the work that was satisfied at the cross, super complex though it was, some of it may have extended, we have to extend, extend our faith even the more to even grasp what God was doing. Next, if, if there's one thing made clearer in the Levitical sacrifices, is this, this, this nature, this, this, this norm of a substitutionary death, the, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. It is, it is under this aspect that we must consider the death of Jesus our redeemer, right? Which is why the sacrifice had to be a lamb without spot, without a blemish, representing that, that true pure nature, 
that which was in Jesus Christ. It is this sense that he gave himself up for us, right? Any, uh, I guess, I guess this is the reason why there is such an emphasis on the preciousness, if you will, of the sacrifice. Anything less than the the costliest blood would not have sufficed, because it must not be simply the blood of an individual sufferer but of one who could suffer for a world of sinners. The blood of Christ was precious because of the dignity of his nature and because of his perfect character. Notice it was without blemish. That is without sin. The Bible says that it was without spot. That is not defiled by any contact with sinners, verse 19 of our text. It was lamb-like in meekness, gentleness, purity, uncomplaining suffering. And thus, it became adequate for the work of cleansing away this terrible mountain of sin that we had accrued from lives past, present, and future. The object of our redemption is worth close attention. From, from, from our vain conversation, Peter puts it, uh, we received by tradition from our fathers. Do we, do we realize the position into which the shedding of blood of Jesus has brought us to, be, to believe? It is our ransom price, the Bible says, the, the purchase money of our entire being. Us belonging to Christ. The apostles lived in a day where uh, there was merciless uh, slavery, but they never hesitated to borrow from that imagery to which is set forth our relationship to Jesus. The apostle Paul wrote, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And Peter referred to, to some who, quote, denying the Lord, their master who bought them. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. 2 Peter 2 and 1. We have the text of the, of the Bible to, to give us support. But we know the purchaser of any slave regards him as his personal possession, his chattel, his goods, if you will. And he could, if he chose to, to feed him to his animals. No one would demonstrate our complaint against this. He looked on all the slave belongings, all the slave earnings, all the slave talents and abilities as his rightful income, his salary, his wages for himself because he purchased those slaves. His word and his will in that community was absolute law. And such are the rights which our master has over us. He has redeemed us from the curse and penalty of sin to be a people for his own possession, his very own. So, who then, who then of us can live as we have been doing, following after, the Bible says, after vanity? trading in the footsteps of our parents, content to do as others have done before us. Our Redeemer is our Lord. 
as he has set us free from the curse and penalty of sin, so now he demands of us to come out from the world and be separated so that we can be of use for himself in his kingdom. We are leaving the vain conversations, uh, sinful behavior received by tradition. We are leaving the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the, the pride of life. We are exchanging it for purity and holiness and devotion to him, not only as our creator, but also, watch this, our redeemer. What a marvelous exchange there is for us in Christ. Our manner of life is exchanged for holiness in all manner of living. Our imitation of our fathers for the upward following of him who was raised us from the dead to glory or reliance on tradition that is exchanged for our nightly prayers, our regular communication, our vital uh, communication with Jesus. Have you assumed that attitude? Have you, have you thought of that? I urge you to do so if you haven't, without delay. I, I, I urge you to recognize his claims of ownership of you. Give yourself up entirely to his service. Let no more time pass as, as is necessary. Peter, Peter, Peter urges them. He says, you have followed in the tradition of your fathers with their vanities and sins. Well, the blood of Jesus, like that of the martyrs, shed on the pathway of warriors shall make us consider our pursuits and turn us to a better mind. And what is that? To obtain Christ. So finally, think of the characters who through him caused you to believe in God. I don't know who it was. Maybe, maybe a Sunday school teacher, preacher, a friend. Our faith, and which at the beginning of our Christian life are mainly occupied with that of Christ. Watch this. So that we find ourselves most often addressing him in our prayers. Remember, the son reveals the father. He promised this to John in John 14, verse 7. The father is known and loved through the son. So God becomes all in all, and the soul is satisfied with its entire weight on him and him alone, paying for the sins of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. And, and if we were to look at Christ's sacrifice in that way, we would begin to understand just a little bit of what he had to endure in order to purchase our salvation. I really do believe that it is incumbent upon us to think hard about this passage. Uh, it attests to this glorious truth. Let us not forget that the true and ultimate object of our faith must be the God of the resurrection. The God of the resurrection. You remember the story of Lazarus? He said to, to Mary and Martha, he said to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he turns to them and he says, do you believe this? He's referring to the spirit that raised him up from the dead, that will raise him up from the dead, that will raise up you and I. That same spirit is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, if you will, the eternal spirit, which was from the beginning. So let it also be conceived in your minds that the primary object of the revelation of the Father in the person and work of Jesus, which has been done to make it easier for our sin-stricken souls to believe in him, the one who raised him up and gave him glory, that our faith and hope might be in God through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 That's all I have tonight. I, I, I hope you have one or two questions for me. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please tell Text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.